everyone. I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And joining me today on one of the new components of our podcast series, our Profiles series, is Mara Cunningham, a writer and historian of modern China and the current digital media manager at the Association of Asian Studies. Joining her this afternoon is Jeffrey Wasserstrom, the Chancellor's Professor of History at UC Irvine, where he edits the Journal of Asian Studies. Mara and Jeff are both here at the committee this afternoon because they're doing a program on their latest book, China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know. But since that program is going to be recorded and put up on our website so everyone can hear the podcast, rather than talk to them about the book, we decided to talk to them today about their professional lives. I'm excited about talking to Mara and Jeff today because both of them are not your typical academics. Both of them feel very strongly about not sitting in an ivory tower and getting their knowledge out into the public domain. I want to start with the two of them talking about what it was that made them want to go off into a different way of thinking about China and a different way of getting their knowledge out to others. Jeff, why don't we start with you? So I finished my dissertation in 1989, and my dissertation was on the history of Chinese student movements. Right when I was turning it in, the Tiananmen protests were happening in China. And I immediately thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if the people who were uh, covering the event in the field would talk more about the history of Chinese student movements rather than focusing just on whatever had just happened or comparing them to what was happening in Eastern Europe. Even though that was interesting, I thought if only they knew the kind of work that was in something like the dissertation that I had done. And so after the event, I sat down, I, I tried to get in touch with somebody at a newspaper. My parents knew somebody who was involved with the Los Angeles Times Sunday Magazine, and she was willing to read something that I wrote. And I thought, well, I've got this 400-page dissertation. I know I can't send that. So I'll write something really short, and I'll, I won't have it with lots of footnotes. So I sent her a 20-page piece with a fair number of footnotes. And she sent it back saying, this is nothing like what we would we would run. <laughs> but I really felt like I had something to offer, but this wasn't the way to do it. So I realized that even though I had just gotten a PhD, I had to somehow retrain myself to become part of this kind of um, debate. And I, and I sort of vowed at that point that if there was ever a time again when my kind of expertise, my knowledge of a certain thing would be, be relevant, I'd know better how to, how to do it. Then I had a wonderful stroke, stroke of luck, which is that some filmmakers, um, the Longbow filmmakers, were making a, a documentary about 1989. And they invited me to be one of their consultants. They heard about it, uh, about the fact I'd worked on students. And then, so I spent a, a couple of years working with them. And for them, it was that they, they wanted to just insert a sentence here or there, or a few sentences. And I felt that that could be my contribution. Then I realized that interpreted that film was incredibly successful yes and that when it came to how people thought about a topic in China that I cared about a lot actually that consulting was more significant than the things in terms of influencing people than the things I was writing in my purely academic work and so then I started working on ways to 
write more than a sentence or get more than a <laughs> sentence or two in, but obviously um, not go on at great length and for just specials. So try to figure out how could I develop the skills to feel good about what I was saying in terms of uh, connecting to the knowledge I had, but also in a very accessible way for ordinary people to be able to read. And once you've tried to do that in a very short form, then you can expand, then something like an op-ed stops seeming like it's tiny and you have to leave so much out, you realize that you can actually fit a fair amount into even these short form things. So um, luckily, I had my, my next lucky break was that I found some academics who were already doing that and had already made that um, transition. And they were very nice to, um, to mentor me and to read versions that I would send them of things that I thought were really simplifying things down, but they would say how to make it even more concise and how to take even less for granted. So I, I was very lucky at each stage to have people who um, had gone through that process already. Um, Marilyn Young, um, uh, an American diplomatic historian who sometimes wrote about China, um, was somebody who was wonderful at doing that, who mm -hmm. would speak in public at, at set settings where nobody had specialized knowledge and would figure out a way to, um, to, to shrink it down. And mm -hmm. I told her, you know, it's great. I, I hope, I, I don't want to feel bad about going into this sort of punditry. It's not punditry. Historically informed commentary. Say that. <laughs> uh, she was wonderful and very supportive. And there were a few other people like that. And that made a big difference to me. Which is why when the National Committee started its public intellectuals program, mm -hmm. I felt, I wish there had been something like this. <laughs> I'd had to sort of do a DIY version of that by finding people who would um, just take me under their wing and do that. So that's one of the things I've liked so much about the National Committee and one of the reasons why I've been involved with it. Well, we're very delighted that you have liked us and our programs and that you trained such a terrific student like Mara, uh, who came to the National Committee several years ago and joined me in working on this program that we have that nurtures the younger generation of American China specialists and is trying to do exactly what you've just talked about, take their knowledge and not just regurgitate it to the people in academia, but get it out into the public domain. And so that leads me to Mara, and I'm curious, did you go to UC Irvine because you already had in you this desire to do what Jeff had done and knew that he could train you well, or did that come just serendipitously because that's where you went to school? No, that was absolutely the reason that I decided to go to UC Irvine. Um, I grew up knowing not in exactly what I wanted to do with my life, but knowing that I was really interested in three things, which were history, travel, and writing. And that some way, in some some way, I was going to combine all of these in my career. And um, the travel portion of it got narrowed to China when I was in college, and I started taking courses in Chinese history and East Asian history, and realized that this was a really interesting com uh, country that I had not studied all that much in high school. I had read The Good Earth, and that was about it. That mm -hmm. was the extent of what I knew about China before I started college. And I was reading really fabulous books by both journalists and scholars. Um, so Peter Hessler. And Jonathan Spence being two examples of authors that I read in college who I really, really enjoyed their work and thought, this is the kind of work I would like to do. So I finished school and I moved to Beijing to study Chinese and kind of thought maybe I should just cast myself out into the world as a freelance writer. But 
temperamentally, that's not really something I felt very confident I could handle. I like a little bit more structure in my life. And so I decided that I was going to go to graduate school um, because I wanted to really develop a specialization in Chinese history. But I knew that I didn't want to look for a tenure track job. I was very interested um, in documentary filmmaking, actually, from watching things like the Gate of Heavenly Peace that Jeff talked about. I was very interested in museum curation of exhibits and in reaching broader audiences. So I started looking around and started talking to different professors around the country and they all kind of said, you know, you, it sounds like you should probably get to know Jeff Wasserstrom because he's <laughs> doing the sorts of things that you're talking about. And so I, um, I applied to a lot of graduate programs, but I was very pleased to get accepted to UC Irvine. And actually, a couple of weeks after I got the admissions letter, um, Jeff wrote to me and he said, you know, I know you haven't started here yet, but we've, we've founded this thing called a blog. And I'm not sure <laughs> if you know what a blog is. But Did you at the time? I, I sort of. This was early 2008, and I knew that there were people out there writing on the internet. I don't think I specifically knew that it was called a blog. But he said, it's called the China Beat, and it's a bunch of historians and journalists and freelance writers who are just writing about whatever they want to write about, about China. And there were book reviews and sort of short travel pieces and analysis and commentary and things like that. So uh, he said, if you're ever interested in writing something for us, we'd be happy to have you do that. And so I did a book review of Rob Gifford's China Road. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the first, really the first piece that I ever published for a broad audience about China. And so that was something I got involved in even before I started graduate school. And during my first year at UC Irvine, got more and more involved in writing for the China Beat to the extent that Jeff and the editor, Kate Merkel-Hess, asked if I would like to become an editor of the blog as well. And so during my starting in my second year, I was writing and editing for the China Beat. And that really became sort of my training ground. Um, so I had my scholarly training ground in the classroom, writing mm -hmm. research papers and doing archival research and so forth. But then I also had a sort of grad school version of the public intellectuals program, which was learning to write short, learning to write to the point, but accessibly. So, mm -hmm. you know, explaining, not just taking for granted that everyone who was reading what I wrote knew as much about China as I did, having lived in the country for a few years, but that I really needed to find short ways of explaining and making um, reference to a bigger picture. And I was also doing a lot of editing, um, both for the China Beat and for other places. And so that was, those were two of the skills that I worked on during grad school, which was both the writing and editing side of um, reaching wider audiences. So you were very lucky because you were able to find a mentor who you could join and who could help train you and who is also um, willing to put up with you not focusing on <laughs> academics all the time. Which leads me to ask you, I mean, Mars chosen a life style and, and a job history that has essentially taken her out of the ivory tower in academia. But you're still in that ivory tower. And I know there is often sort of academics looking down their nose at people who write op-eds or for the travel magazine of United Airlines or whatever. So how has that affected your career? I mean, you're a named professor, so clearly it hasn't held you back much. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the in-flight magazine, because <laughs> I, I, I published in there and I thought, how great, there's a captive audience. Right, I mean, I, that's one of the first things I've read of yours, and I thought, wow, it's really clever of him to get into this magazine. <laughs> so two things I'd say about that. So one is there are costs as well. So I, it, it worked out very happily. I'm not just, it's not just that I, I, this, this chancellor's professorship, but I'm in a part of the country I want to be in and an institution that I wanted to be in and things like that. But it was a, 
it's kind of a high risk, high reward choice to make to try to go for that broader audience mm -hmm. because it can be, um, you can be dismissed as not serious enough mm -hmm. or not doing the things that count. And there was a while there where I would be um, shortlisted for jobs and then not get them, not just because of how kind of pop I'd gone, mm -hmm. but par partly that. Mm -hmm. I'd also become more comparative and global, which now is a plus, but early on wasn't so much. So you can never really, so the, it, it did have potential costs. It was worth it. And I, I guess I, one thing I've left out of my biography, um, which also leads to something about the kind of writing, is um, while I, was, I went through a pretty straight course of going through graduate school and getting a job as an academic and staying, always had a job as an academic, my dilemma um, when I graduated from college was whether to go um, to Harvard to get a master's or to Nashville to try to sell songs. <laughs> so I always knew I wanted to be a writer. Right. And the question was, what kind of writing? And for a while, I thought, like, I completely, what I was doing had nothing to do with the songwriting side of me, except... In retrospect, I've started to realize that there are certain things that are similar between, you know, a kind of op-ed short piece mm -hmm. and a, a song. pop song. Right. Mm -hmm. You need to have a hook. Mm -hmm. You need to have something. You need to repeat things a certain number of times, right. but keep it from getting boring <laughs> by putting twists into it. So um, we huh. don't really have the idea of a kicker in a song, but there's a bridge that sometimes, you know, takes right. something a little different. So I do think, and, and you know, I mean, I guess... There's also, I'm kind of a ham, you know, which that you think helps, of this, the right? performance. <laughs> right. So um, both songwriting and I also did some improvisational theater when I was in high school hmm. and some theater. And again, I acted in plays. And these are things that I thought for a while had nothing to do with the, the, the course, I, the, the way my life right. took. But actually public speaking. A lot to do with Trying that, yeah. to be entertaining yeah. in that kind of setting, not to lose the interest of the audience. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that, that those kinds of things have, um, in interesting ways, linked up. And that's why I was going to say about writing, it's both about communicating in an accessible, easy way, but it's also finding ways to keep the audience engaged and to do a kind of uh, writing. And I was thinking one commonality is Peter Hessler, you know, Peter Hessler hadn't, hadn't graduated from, oh no, Peter Hessler hadn't written a word other than probably you know, composition papers in sixth grade when <laughs> right. I was in college. But I did read, I was assigned Jonathan Spence, mm -hmm. which was one of my first courses in Chinese history and one thing that led me to China, um, besides, you know, also travel and I like the food, but it was the first course I took in Chinese history. They assigned uh, Death of Wong Wong by mm -hmm. Jonathan Spence, which right. was then a brand new book. Mm -hmm. Frederick Wakeman, Strangers at the Gate, which mm -hmm. was a beautifully written book. Yep. And a Judge D mystery oh, wow, novel cool. by Van <laughs> yes. And I thought, wow, is this the kind of book that you read as a Chinese historian? <laughs> it was all downhill you know, after that. Idiot, but, you know, <laughs> luckily, luckily there, you know, there was some other good writing, but I, I, you know, it definitely drew me in. It was the writing yeah. as well as the history. So it's yeah. the storytelling about yeah. all story of it. It's engaging That's people it. yeah. by telling a story. And yeah. when I was in graduate school, even though, you know, Frederick Wakeman he really wanted me to, you know, he wanted me to produce a dissertation that would get me a good academic job, and he wanted to be able to say he placed his students in X, Y, and Z prestigious university. But I knew that his passion was storytelling, mm -hmm. you know, that when he really came alive was when he was telling the story, some of which came across in his books, but some of it 
came across in other ways. Right. So I never quite lost that idea that it was all about storytelling. Well, I, I think that's an extraordinarily important thing for professors to keep in mind because um, that is what keep people engaged and wanting to go on and do more. And not just students, but anybody is going to want to listen to. What advice would the two of you have for people who want to follow in your careers and do things like you have done? Is there a, a wide enough audience or a broad enough platform for there to be clones of the two of you? <laughs> well, isn't that what the public intellectuals it, program it is, is doing? Yes, um, I think, you know, it's, and actually I, I was joking, but you know, one of the things about PIP is that it says there are multiple ways that you can have an impact on a broader audience. So it's, Jeff and I have both chosen to do it through our writing and public speaking, but there are a lot of other people who do teacher training sessions who are interested in working in their local communities to arrange events and things like that. There are others who um, try to get into the world of policy, public policy and policymaking. Um, and they think that the best way for them to share their expertise with a broader broader audience is by talking with government officials. And so I, there's certainly no one set path that, and there's no formula to say, do this, this, and this, and you will become a public intellectual or you will get a broader audience. I think certainly um, the, probably the thing I learned not the most from Jeff in grad school, because that would, that would be probably a poor reflection, but um, <laughs> one of the things that I learned among many others um, is to uh, pitch fast, write often, and keep a sense of humor and because you're going to face a lot of rejection. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the key is to kind of just keep going and keep turning around and keep um, working at it. And so I think it's very important to not get discouraged because the probably it's very, it would be very easy to get discouraged at the beginning. Um, most of us don't publish the first piece we pitch or we don't get paid for the first piece we write. And so I think it's, uh, it's important to keep a sense of humor about it and to keep some perspective that this is great work. I really enjoy it, um, but there's a lot of other things in life and that there are different ways to reach audiences. So if you try one path that you think might seem appealing, but it's not really working out for you, think more broadly and more flexibly and think, try to find if there's another way that you can share your talents. So I'd say, just adding on that, that um, things have gotten better. Because the academy is embattled and has to sort of justify what we're doing, there's become more openness than there was before to taking work that reaches a broader audience seriously. Because, especially in the humanities, the, the mm -hmm. social, political science, right. it's, it's made Still, a different. Right. But certainly in history, and the National Endowment for Humanities now, um, it started a new fellowship called Public Scholars, where yes. it encourages people to write these kinds of books. But the other thing I'd say is it, 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 it won't necessarily work. All these things won't work. But, but one of the things to take heart in is that usually different kinds of, of writing and different kinds of speaking are useful even if they don't lead to a certain kinds of success mm -hmm. and are actually not as far removed from the other things you do anyway and can help you do them better anyway. So some people who will say, there's no way I could write about this thing that I know a book's worth of material about. There's no way that I could write 2,000 words about it. What I would say is, so do you ever give a lecture in a class where you only have 10 minutes to cover mm -hmm. that? And they would say yes. And well, you know, you're doing we're used to doing that simplifying of things that we know are much more complicated when we're when we're doing it in the classroom 
And so it's not that different. And if you've written a 2,000 word or a 1,000 word op-ed, you can give a five minute lecture on something pretty easily because you've done that. So that kind of reduc reducing and expanding, most topics can be written about it any length or in almost any, any brevity. And the work you do in these different things, I think is sometimes writing is different kinds of muscles. So it's mm -hmm. doing an academic article is one kind of um, a discipline or one set of, of muscles and writing a blog post is, is another. It's not always, it's not even always that the time is, sometimes you can write, blogging used to be something would be nice when I didn't want to think about the main thing I was thinking about as a kind of diversion. And the other thing is a lot of us, I, um, a lot of us do this kind of, we, we have to talk to our friends or our relatives or right. people Oh, you're we home meet. for Passover. And Tell us go, all about Xi <laughs> Jinping in yeah, 10 minutes. And, right. you, and they don't have more than that right. time to spend on it. So, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have ways you want to communicate what you do in a, short, in a short amount of time. So you might as well figure out interesting ways to do it. So I know the two of you probably have very different thoughts about and attitudes toward social media than I do, and especially the Twitter sphere. Um, well, Twitter's got a lot to answer for. It's right. Pretty yeah. nasty there, but yeah. I, I will say this: when Twitter came around, with it when it was originally the 140 characters, mm -hmm. one of the nice things was that it made writing a blog post seem substantial. Yes. So you didn't have to justify like blogs. A lot of our blog right. posts were a thousand or you know around a thousand words, and suddenly that didn't seem like the shortest thing possible. So it's like instead of people saying I couldn't possibly write a blog post about that, I'd need to write an article. They'd say, well, oh, at least I've got a thousand. You know, you aren't asking me to reduce it to 140 characters. Right. I mean, I think certainly um, for me, Twitter has had two big advantages. One is forcing me to really sharpen and sharpen my thoughts, get to the point, you know, say something as clearly as possible in as few characters as possible, because it's so easily, it's so easy to be taken out of context on yes. Twitter. And if you're not really careful, and if you're not um, articulate enough about what you want to say, then things can just blow up. But the other thing is that Twitter has been invaluable for me in networking, and not in a negative way. But networking in the sense of growing the network of people I know in the China sphere um, and also more broadly in academia around the world. And so it's really, I think, a great tool for people to use if they're into it. And I don't think everyone needs to be on Twitter. Um, but if you're really into it, it's a great way to make connections with people and find people who have similar interests, sometimes very unexpectedly and in unexpected places. And just, just yesterday, um, Jeff and I gave a talk at Harvard and a couple hours before the talk, I got a direct message from someone who said, oh, I just saw an advertisement about your talk and I've wanted to meet you for a long time and do you have time to um, meet me for coffee tonight? And so that's the kind of thing, it was very fortuitous, it was completely- It was because she followed you on Twitter. It was because she followed me on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, this is someone who's not, not really in the China field, she's an academic um, and has spent time in China but isn't writing about China. And so our paths might never have crossed in other way, you know, in um, any other context, but because she had seen my name on Twitter, um, she thought, hey, we should get together and chat. So we did, and it was really serendipitous. 
Well, I'm hoping that some other serendipitous occurrences will emanate from this podcast that we've just done. Um, it's been wonderful having the two of you with me and, and here in our offices. I'm very much looking forward to your talk uh, on your new book, again, China in the 21st Century, What Everyone Needs to Know, the third edition. And we hope you will all listen to the podcast of that uh, and that you've enjoyed this one. Thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you.